John Adams wrote that the United States should be governed by a few of the most wise and good, the rich and well-born and able. Hamilton said that the rich and well-born should have a distinct permanent place in government to check the imprudence of democracy. Yet Adams was a son of a farmer. Hamilton was an illegitimate orphan raised in abject poverty. Not exactly well-born, either of them. Beware of men who see their own rise to success as a sign of their own superiority. Todd Karras, uh, famous song from The Third Man, and at the top it was Ian Ruskin, uh, an actor uh, portraying Tom Paine, the uh, radical revolutionary journalist who really is the father of the American rebellion, revolution, whatever you want to call it, and kind of the unsung hero uh, of that era. And we're going to be talking about uh, Paine, not just today, but for the coming days before the 4th of July celebration uh, with uh, Professor Harvey K, who wrote this beautiful book called uh, Tom Paine, Promise of America. Really is, it really changed my life when I read that 15 years ago, my view uh, of that era. And I became a complete painite and a pain in the ass, I guess. So, um, by the way, he's a, uh, he's a professor uh, at the University of Wisconsin at Green Bay, and he's written a number of books. He really is the foremost scholar on Tom Paine, Citizen Thomas Paine, and uh, this is the, the very first one. We'll be back with him a few times, and uh, we're going to just get right into it, um, and uh, this is a... Uh, a piece of music uh, called uh, Tom Paine's Bones, and it's by Slee. We'll be right back with uh, Professor K. As I went out one evening, by a different discontent, I bumped straight into old Tom Paine as running down the road he went. He said, I can't stop right now, child. King George is after me. He'd have a rope around my throat. Me on a liberty tree. And I will dance to Tom Paine's bones, dance to Tom Paine's bones. Now dance in the oldest boots I own to the rhythm of Tom Paine's bones. Dance to Tom Paine's bones, dance to Tom Paine's bones. Now dance in the oldest boots I own to the rhythm of Tom Paine's bones. I only talked about freedom and justice for. This is Randy Critical Live on the Fly, and uh, as promised, we are now being joined by the gentleman who I just gave a wonderful introduction to in my preamble, and that is Professor Harvey K. Harvey, what a thrill it is to have you on this show, because I have been a fan of yours for 15 years since I read the book we're going to talk about. That's very nice of you. Thank you. It's a pleasure to meet. Yes. All right. Well, um, you know, 
Coming up in just uh, 10 days, nine days, is the uh, 4th of July celebration. And I thought you'd be perfect for this uh, because on the 4th of July, we celebrate Hamilton, we celebrate Washington, we celebrate Adams and Monroe uh, and others, but we don't celebrate the unsung hero, the person who I think we should be celebrating, and that's Tom Paine, who I think is the greatest individual uh, possibly in U.S. history, but certainly during uh, that Revolutionary War era. Yeah, if I could just say, my thinking is that Thomas Paine is not only the godfather of the revolution, but he's also the guy who I believe fundamentally made Americans radicals. And ever since then, they're the powerful, whether they're property or, or pious or prestigious, whoever they are, have done their damnedest to try to suppress that fundamental radicalism that, that's part of the American spirit. Well, when you read reading this book, which is uh, Thomas Paine, uh, Promise of America, The Promise of America, which I read for the first time when it came out back in 2005, 2000. I read it again. I gave two copies away. In fact, I'm reading it right now. I'm not, you know, not even halfway through because I'm reading it and then I have to go to uh, the uh, internet to look up uh, little anecdotes that you put into the book. The book is so well written. It really is. It is the, and I've read other books on, on, on uh, pain, but nothing quite like this. It's so readable. Um, and I know you've been asked this a million times. You had an affection for Thomas Paine when you were a young man in Brooklyn. Yeah, when my, my when I was about 10 years old, and I, it sounds ridiculous. I'm not as old as it sounds when I say I met Thomas Paine when I was 10 years old on Eastern Parkway in Brooklyn. But it's the case that my, my grandparents had an apartment right opposite the Brooklyn Museum. And I used to love going to the museum, but when I couldn't make it there, because I was only 10 years old, um, I would wander their apartment as if it was the galleries of a museum, because they had, you know, a lot of fascinating objects. And in the very back of the dining room in my grandparents' apartment, my grandfather, who was a trial lawyer, kept his personal books. And there was a shelf among those books, among those that bookshelves, that, that included his, basically his collection of books by and about Thomas Paine. And there was one book in particular, as long as you've asked, that really caught my attention. This one, which I'm gonna hold up in front of the camera here, Thomas Paine, author of the Declaration of Independence. Now imagine you're 10 years old, and there's a book, and every 10-year-old tends to believe whatever a book says, a book that says it's Thomas Paine and not Thomas Jefferson who wrote the Declaration. So the first thought that must have gone through my head is, my teachers are wrong. Therefore, so this, I adopted that book's argument for years. I used to say, I tell my students today that I never got 100% on an American history quiz if the question had to do with the Declaration because I made some cockamamie argument that it was Thomas Paine. And by the way, as an adult, I absolutely know that Thomas Paine didn't write it for a number of reasons. First of all, if Thomas Paine had written it, it might have come across as even more radical than it was, okay? Because, because Thomas Paine probably would have included an argument about separating church and state. That, that's the proof to me, okay? But in any case, so Thomas Paine became my hero and my grandmother died uh, within a, a year or so after I first ran into the book and my grandfather had to downsize. So he gave me the stuff 
you know, that probably he didn't need in his library any longer. So I had books by and about Payne, but I, I'm not, not going to tell you I understood all of them, but Payne became my hero even before I was, you know, really able to understand his arguments. And so I, I became a historian and a sociologist and a political scientist along the way. I didn't really get back to Thomas Paine in any serious way until the early 90s. And I had this, and I ended up doing a volume entitled The American Radical, which I could probably hold up another copy of, but I won't Please bother do. right now. But the main thing is this, when the opportunity arose See the American a, Radical. Right? What's that? Show that, if you got that book close by? Again, I think I'd have to run over to, to, to my little library behind me. I've only got an, an, an uncovered copy, which means I don't have the... Actually, no, I, I can do that. Next time we, next time we talk, I'll try to show that. All right, we'll show a copy of it. All right. Okay. But what I was going to say is that following that, I had this idea that I would like to do, I'd like to do a book on Thomas Paine, and an opportunity arose for me, and I won't go through the whole story, though it was rather serendipitous. An opportunity arose for me to do a young adult book on Thomas Paine, which I'm going to hold up here as well. Thomas Paine, Firebrand of the Revolution. And wow. that, was with, that was with Oxford University Press. And when it came out, to my utter surprise, I won the New York Public Library Award for Best Book for Teenagers. That's amazing. It yeah, really it, I mean, and it was accidental that I actually found out because they sent out a long list of all the award-winning Oxford books and I was going to delete it. But that, you know, why, why would I care? And then I just scanned it and I happened to see my book. And oh, wow, that's pretty cool. So. Uh, so I told, I, I, I told people I knew that I didn't want to give up Thomas Paine, that I really wanted to do something else. And I decided that I would try to do a book about him, but I realized I didn't want to do a bi full scale biography, you know, one of those 400 page, 600 page biographies, because there were already good biographies available. But what I really wanted to do was a book of three parts. In the first part of the book, I was going to tell Thomas Paine's life and labors. In the second part, I was going to talk about the suppression of his memory in American history. As you were saying, when July 4th comes around, we tend to celebrate the likes of Jefferson and Adams and Franklin and Washington. We don't talk about Thomas Paine. The third thing I was going to do was I was going to bring Thomas Paine back to life. I mean, this was now 2000, 2001, in fact, when I was going to start, when I started writing this. And I was going to bring him back to life, or as a friend of mine who was a Lutheran minister said, WWTPD, what would Thomas Paine do, okay? Instead of what would Jesus do? Right. And, and so I set out with that plan in mind and when I got the contract to write just that book. But when I started getting into the library, for the fun of it, I walked down all the shelves of the American history section. I just kept pulling off biographies of other Americans, looking in the index to see if there was any reference to Paine, to see if, in, to see to what extent he might truly have been forgotten. And what I discovered was that I had been wrong, biographers were wrong, and historians were wrong. What had happened is, as much as the powers that be in every generation tried to suppress Thomas Paine's memory, the fact was that the liberal, radical, or progressive movements of those days, whether it was early 19th century, you know, right through in every generation, they reached back to the revolution, they laid claim to Thomas Paine to connect their own struggle to the revolution itself. And Thomas Paine's work never was out of print and was regularly the champion in memory of every significant progressive movement in American history. 
Yeah, I heard uh, Cornell West, Dr. Cornell West, uh, talk about uh, Thomas uh, Paine, and uh, he certainly holds him in high esteem. He really is a, a, a well-read historian himself. Uh, and I've heard many others talk about uh, pain. And as my friend Barry Crimmins uh, used to say, uh, no pain, no twain. Right? <laughs> and Funny I you say that. Mark Twain thought Thomas Paine was one of the three most important people in human history. Right. And so I know he was influenced by him. And, and so uh, Paine will not be remembered this 4th of July, which is a real loss. You know, people will not be celebrating pain as they should be. They'll be celebrating Hamilton. Hamilton's gotten way too much uh, adulation, particularly with this play. I'm not a big Hamilton fan, to be honest with you. I gotta I, tell you, wait, I have something to tell you. Very interesting about that. First of all, when I was a child, my parents told me they almost named me Hamilton instead of Harvey. Mm -hmm. okay. Really? And, I, and so as a boy, I thought, oh, this guy Hamilton must be a pretty decent guy. But of course, my mind changed when it came to the class question when I, when I grew up and realized what we were talking about. But that's not even the story I want to mention. Lin-Manuel Miranda, who wrote Hamilton, right? The Broadway musical. Right. When he was asked by the New York Times Book Review, and they do this sometimes, what book should every American read? He said, Thomas Paine's Common Sense. Really? Yeah. Well, we're gonna, we're gonna talk about a, I sent him a message and I said, well then make your next show about Thomas Paine. But he didn't even, he didn't even reply, so what the hell? Well, that's, uh, that's amazing. Uh, you know, I know his father really well. He's a, uh, a consultant uh, in this city and his son has probably made more money. Uh, but I'm not interested her more than I like Hamilton, to be honest with you. Uh, that's for a different day. I know Burr has been totally smeared by everybody. He, he probably deserved it. Yeah, well, you know, he actually was a, uh, ahead of his time with, uh, he freed the two slaves that he had, and he was very close friends with uh, Jeremy Bentham and William Blake, and uh, he was a, uh, a feminist. He really was a... It's so funny you bring the people, you know, I have a connection to Jeremy Bentham. You do? Yes. My graduate degree is from the University of London, and I... I did the degree at University College London, which was the original college, and the London School of Economics. Jeremy Bentham was one of the sort of founding figures of University College London. And he was so committed to the college that when he died, he specified in his will. University College London was very radical for its day. It allowed men and women in as students. It didn't require religious studies, and it even set up a medical school, which was a very radical thing. And you didn't have to be an Anglican, a member of the Church of England, to be a student there. So he was so committed to the college that in his will, he said he would leave his body to the medical school for use as a cadaver on the condition that when they were finished, they would cover the skeleton in a plaster cast, basically, of him. And, as long, and they would place it in a big oak, oak cabinet with a glass front and place it in the great hall at the college so that he would always be among the students. So every day I went over to University College, I never miss going past and saying hello to Jeremy Bentham, just for the record. All right, well that's, uh, you know, but it does say something about uh, 
about uh, Burr that he was close. I don't know if he was friendly with um, with um, your uh, Thomas Paine. I, I I just don't know either. I don't know. They were both aide de camps to different generals. Uh, yes, so they probably did know each other. Right. Uh, well, they both certainly have. Uh, very rich backgrounds for different reasons. Pain, definitely. We're going to talk about common sense in a minute because we may close it right there because this is going to be a two-part, maybe a three-part series. Um, and I want to talk about your other books uh, in, the, in the very near future when I get them in the mail. Um, but uh, I want to go back to uh, Payne. Payne was a, was a, I call him a, a revolutionary journalist, basically. Uh, is, that, is that an adequate description? Yeah, I mean, you could call him a, re a revolutionary pamphleteer, but he was also a radical or revolutionary journalist. Um, you could call him basically just literally a sort of a, a radical thinker. He, he was not a philosopher, but he was a radical writer. But, I, but a revolutionary journalist works well. Yeah, well, you know, I, let's just talk about his beginnings. He, he grew up in, uh, in, uh, in England. He was born right. in England. And uh, tell us a little bit about his background. Yeah, he was born in 1737 in Thetford, England, which is in Norfolk. And his uh, parents were an odd couple, you might say, because his father was a Quaker artisan, meaning he was a member of the Society of Friends, and also a staymaker, which is basically a corset maker. And his mother was an Anglican, who was several years older than, than his father. Anglicans and Quakers would rarely have, <laughs> okay, would rarely have, have married, but they did. And his, it was a tough life for a Quaker artisan at that time, not only because since he wasn't a member of the Church of England, he didn't have sort of full, they didn't call it citizenship, but all the rights of an Anglican. And also being a staymaker was tough. It was a very tough living to make, both economically and also as a craft, because imagine you're gonna create stays for women's undergarments. It wasn't exactly, I mean, some people might enjoy that, but it was a really tough, a tough labor with hands to work in whalebone and such stuff. So anyhow, um, what enabled them to do what they had hoped to do and send their son to school was that her aunt, his mother's aunt, had some money and she may not have had children of her own, we don't know, but she provided the funds to enable his parents to send him to school and, and he did go to school until the age of 13, okay? Another note about that, which is interesting, is that it was a school that had sort of two tracks, two, two tracks. One track, in one of the tracks, you learned uh, Greek and Latin, and in the other track, you didn't learn Greek or Latin. And his father insisted he not be in the Greek or Latin track, because as a Quaker, he saw Latin as the religion of the high church, possibly even Catholicism, okay? So it's said that one of the reasons Paine wrote so in such a popular style, in a style that could reach his fellow working people when he, when he became a pamphleteer, is that he had never been distracted by Latin, by the fancifications of language that people who knew Latin might have pursued. So anyhow, he becomes uh, a, stu a student a as a boy, but his parents could only keep him in school until he was 13. At that point, they pulled him out and they apprenticed him to his own father. So as, a, as what we would say as a teenager, he's a, an apprentice corset maker, which by the way, from most accounts, he didn't really enjoy or appreciate. And he really yearned for some adventure in his life. And later, as he, as he approached 19, maybe even turned 19, he decided to run away 
and run away to serve aboard a privateer. Now, a lot of people don't know the term privateer. They know what a pirate is, and they know what a Royal Navy sailor is. A privateer was an, a ship, privately owned ship, that was commissioned by the king's government, by the crown, to go out and pray, that is attack, P-R-E-Y, attack enemy vessels. And the deal was that if they successfully, you know, took possession of an enemy transport, then they could take possession of it, they could basically share it up as if they were pirates, and then, of course, they would bring it back to, to port and uh, the ship would become the property of the crown. But the, what was aboard it would literally provide for money in their pockets. And he spent a year, as, the, as you would say, between the devil and the deep blue sea. Turned out to be an important moment, though he doesn't talk about it very much. It's important because, first of all, he's all the more, he, there he is out at sea, okay, probably with a multiracial crew, okay. So it gives him a sense of the diversity of humanity. Second of all, he learns how to fight because that's what they were out there to do. And third, he was able to use his skills as a, court, as a stay maker by way of, the, he would be the guy who repaired the sails if they were in any way damaged in battle or anything else. But after a year, he had enough money in his pocket, he left the ship and he went to London. And he was always, always interested in improving himself. That was one of the things about artisans in those days. They stood above the normal laborers and they had this idea of self-improvement. And London, by the way, in England, there were only two universities at that time, forget University College that I mentioned in, when I was telling my own story, only two, two universities in, in England, Scotland had their own. One was Oxford, the other was Cambridge. And to go to Oxford or Cambridge, you had to be wealthy, you had to be an Anglican, you had to be a male, and basically speaking, it was completely out of reach to the likes of anybody who was an artisan. So he goes to London and he takes a room and he starts attending what we might call a working man's university. Artisans, whether they were glass makers or cabinet makers, they knew about science in a way that other people did not. And many of them had traveled, okay, especially if they were really, really skilled artisans. And so they would give lectures in the evening. They would give lectures not only on their trade, but also on geography, lectures on natural philosophy, like what we would call science today. And Payne attended these. He spent about a year just attending these kinds of events. And he must have loved it. He must have loved it. London was the capital of the world, you might say. There were 600,000 people, very diverse, a lot of commerce, you know, a lot of bookstores. But at the end of the year, he was broke. And he knew that he had to find a way to make a living. He left London and set himself up as a staymaker. So his beginnings are of that sort. Wow. Well, uh, a staymaker does sound like a, a very uh, boring uh, occupation. And, uh, you know, knowing pain through your great work here. And by the way, we are talking to Harvey K., the author of the book we're focusing on, and that is Thomas Paine. Uh, uh, promise the promise uh, of America. I'll hold the book up since. Yeah, there it is. It's a great book, and I recommend people um, uh, get it. I I'm reading it right now on, on a Kindle, and I'll try to hold that up at some point. But um, it's it's difficult for me to read on a Kindle. Plus, I'm I don't blame you. I'm with you. To get that book because uh, it really is a fascinating uh, you know work of art. Uh, 
let me uh, getting he was working class so he you know when you look at him and you look at the ones that we uh, fawn over uh, Jefferson and Hamilton and Washington and Adams they were all wealthy uh, well, Hamilton did come from irregular beginnings right uh, yeah. actually you know he ultimately you know he had, he had a you know he's born in the Caribbean basically he, he grows up at a certain point essentially an orphan comes to America, but he had, he had wherewithal. Payne himself began with very, very humble, humble beginnings. I should have said John Jay because he had a lot of money, uh, right? John Jay definitely, but- Yeah, you know, yeah, well, right. All right, so, so he's, he, uh, these working class roots, and by the way, uh, when he worked on that uh, uh, privateer, uh, and he, I know that he must have been very helpful and I'm wondering, was he ever one of those that uh, held up in, in what they call three sheets to the wind, where when you're able to like fix three sails, you get to drink and the, the term, you know, the guy was, because, you know, they, they smeared him as, as an alcoholic, as a drunk later on uh, in life uh, when he uh, moved to the U.S. But um, yeah. You say he drank wine and cognac, basically. Well, Brian, he might. I mean, I, look, I don't think, I doubt very, look, it, maybe he was an alcoholic, maybe he wasn't. He definitely enjoyed a good drink, is the way I look at it. Well, so did William Seward. He liked cognac. All right, right? All yeah, right. I mean, I, I, I think it, if it helped him write, more power to him. So now, now, so when he leaves this, well, by the way, what is the hardhead club? Did he belong to this group called the Hot? The Headstrong. Headstrong. All right. Headstrong Club. So he, so he, he worked as a, as a, he ends up, by the way, finding a love of his life. They have a very hard time of it, and she dies in childbirth. And so at this point, he's devastated and pretty much bankrupt. And he's, and he's still a young man. Her father had been an excise officer, basically a duties or tax collector. On, on the coast. And they had talked about the possibility of Thomas himself becoming a t uh, an excise officer, because it was, even though the income was little, it paid regularly. And he had an education, he could do the kinds of things that needed to be done. So he returns to his own parents' home and he studies and passes the excise officer's exam. And he spends some years some years, in fact, as an excise officer. He got fired once, sacked, the English would say. He was accused of what was called stamping. That is, that is somehow that he, that he wasn't, that he was taking bribes and not really inspecting cargoes, which, by the way, we don't know if he ever actually was uh, accepting any bribe. The fact is that one historian has discovered that his boss had been accepting the bribes and made him the fall guy. Right. And one of the reasons we think that might be true is that Payne, it took a few years, but he applied to go back into the excise officers commission and they did take him back. And if he had been corrupt, they probably wouldn't have taken him back. But in those three years, this is really important. In those three years, he has to find a way to make a living. And he spends a lot of time in London as a tutor to rich, ki rich people's or at least upper middle class ki uh, parents' kids. So he, he, he's teaching little kids, you might say, or at least young people. He also needs additional monies. And he, the story goes that he, for a while, would turn out at Methodist gatherings on Sunday afternoon. 
Methodists were really sort of in the Church of England and not in the Church of England. So they didn't have churches of their own, but they had gatherings. And at those gatherings, he would preach, it was said. Which, and why would he do that? Well, partly because they would give him food. They would feed him, okay, as a consequence. But it, it's also considered possibly one of the reasons he had this, a real way with words. He was never known as a great speaker, but he, he was always known as being really good with words. And when he get, went back into the excise commission, he was posted to Lewis on the south coast of England. And in Lewis, there was a tavern, the White Hart Tavern, where, his, the, where the landlord of the place he stayed took him and introduced him, and he became a regular member of the Headstrong Club. And they would get together once or twice a week, dine, drink, and debate politics, public affairs, and perhaps share some poetry together that they themselves had written. And if you go to the White Hart Tavern now, today, okay, they have a plaque outside on the building and it says, this is where Thomas Paine learned his revolutionary ideas. That's not the case. Though it was a group that was fairly progressive in its thinking, probably when they talked about the American rebellion, they may have had some sympathy for it, but the rebellion itself wasn't a revolution and there's no evidence that Paine became a revolutionary at the tavern. But I wanna show people something Harvey's Tom Paine, this little mug that I have. Wow. Okay, I want to show this because down the, when my wife and I went to the tavern when I was doing the research, we went to the tavern, figuring we'd get a lunch and a beer. There was this, it was called, there was a poster inside the, the, the doors and it said Harvey's Tom Paine. I thought it was a setup. I thought my wife had organized something where this, where the barkeep had put up this little sign. So I went in and I said, I, are, is that serious? Harvey's Tom Paine? He said, yeah, why do you ask? And I said, my name was Harvey, blah, blah, blah. And he said, yeah, down the road at the end of the high street is Harvey's Brewery. Oh. Ah. So every July, and it was July, they produced from the brewery Harvey's Tom Paine's, well, Tom Paine's Ale in honor of Paine and the American Revolution. Wow. So there you go. In fact, I could show a picture of the brewery if people are at all interested. We'd like to see it. There it is. There it is. Okay. Wow. Yeah. Now that is in Lewis or is that in London? Is that That's in Lewis? That's in Lewis. Just down the road, you might say. Right. Well, so, so, so there, what's interesting is Payne became known for being clever, good with words. And Excise officers around England had heard of him because of his, you know, he was sort of doing them proud. And they basically, in a gathering of excise officers, commissioned him, persuaded him to go to London to petition Parliament and the Excise Commission to raise the wages of excise officers, which, by the way, was an illegal thing to do. It was very close to the whole idea of a labor union. Uh-uh, forbidden at the time. But he, he put together a small petition. He wrote it himself. It, it showed he was good with words, though there was nothing revolutionary about it. And he spent, well, maybe up to a year going back and forth and spending time in London. The good part of the story is he becomes all the more acquainted with a very important person, the best known figure of the Atlantic world, Benjamin Franklin. And Franklin took a real liking to him, okay? 
maybe because he had the audacity to petition parliament and the excise commission. But the bad side or the downside was he was sacked again. Sacked, okay? So the question is, where, what's he going to do with his life? Goes, so he goes back, settles his affairs, returns to London, asks Ben Franklin, what would you do? Now, he's already at this point, maybe in his late, he's in his late 30s. And Franklin says to him, I think you should go to America. Right. Before you get to that, before you get yeah. to that, I just, uh, he had already had problems with, with the monarchy and the constitution uh, of, of uh, England or of the UK. Uh, and uh, I, I want to know at what point there, what influenced him politically outside of this uh, work that he did for the excise uh, union or, you know, yeah, the excise, the excise officers. Uh, I mean, I mean, they didn't formally organize a union. They would have literally just been all fat fired if that had happened. Well, okay. So, I mean, there, there's this one, uh, you, you mentioned this in your book, uh, that he was uh, not radicalized, but certainly influenced by the case of John. Uh, yes, right. I should have said, during his time in London, both originally and later, he was witness to what was called the Wilkes, the Wilk, the Wilk, the, the Wilkes movements. Okay, John Wilkes, who was a, a radical journalist, known quite often as a radical and a rogue, was publishing very, very critical statements about English government and, and the king and all of that kind of stuff, and was regularly prosecuted and even might well have, and then, you know, uh, spend time in, in jail. However, he was a very popular figure amongst working people maybe even middle-class people in London. Keep in mind, and I, you know, I didn't want to get into detail about this, but I'm happy to do so. So inequality in England was truly gross. Now, they, had a they, they didn't have a republic or a democracy at all. It was a, it was, you know, it was a, a monarchy. They had a parliament, and they had a House of Lords and a House of Commons. And the House of Commons those who sat, the MPs, were elected undeniably by constituents. The only thing was that in order to vote, you had to have a certain amount of property or you had to have a certain, or you paid a certain amount in taxes to be eligible to vote. So maybe one of every 20 Englishmen could vote. That's, that's important. And there again, you had to be an Anglican to do that. So, and the other thing, so all the mass of people who were working people, whether they're laborers or artisans or for that matter, sort of shopkeepers, the fact is they had no vote. So the, the practice, the way they would express themselves politically was to turn out in crowd-like actions to express their pleasure or discontent with new laws or the state of the economy. And Wilkes truly, at, at times, without perhaps ever wanting to be a truly radical figure himself, would end up radical, you know, sort of mobilizing them to take action against those they might see as oppressors or those they might see as cheaters in the marketplace. I so see. Payne witnessed all of this. And I, one can't help but imagine he already saw that people like him, okay, had a yearning to, to be more directly engaged in deciding, debating, deliberating over what's good for them, okay? So, uh, Wilkes uh, 
was prosecuted and there was this movement and uh, it influenced the uh, pain. And I guess there were other uh, uh, things that he saw in the-, the, well, uh, the poverty that he saw was horrifying. The poverty was, you know, the 18th century in England is famous because a lot of people sort of lived off of gin, okay, to sustain themselves in, in, in the face of just terrible conditions. Um, and he had had that experience as a privateer, which, you know, there was a kind of solidarity amongst those who, who sailed on a privateer. And he understood the capacity of working people as well to create for themselves unity, okay? And they probably learned how to stand up to, to, to miserable, oppressive captains along the way. So he, so he was a, you know, a firsthand observer of what the uh, colonialists were later going to fight against. Uh, so let's get back to uh, Franklin. So uh, he, he meets Franklin. Franklin is kind of entertained by uh, Payne, uh, finds him interesting. Yeah. And so what does he do? So Franklin recommends to Payne. Now, it's important to know that Franklin probably spent as much time in London as he ever did back in Philadelphia. So he's a very famous figure all the way around the Atlantic world and known as, you know, as a, an, an a brilliant scientist, you know, he's a scientist, he's a philosopher, he's, he's clever with his way with, in his way with words. And he's also the American representative in London. And basically speaking, he's constantly being called in to answer for what's going on back in America, in the colonies. The American colonies are already in rebellion. There's no revolutionary spirit to it, but there's decidedly a rebellious spirit to it. They are demanding that they be, be accorded the same rights as their British cousins. Si they say, look, okay, you can't tax us. You can't even legislate anything for us without our approval, our representation, at least, in Parliament. Now, the British government thought that was bullshit, okay? That was bullshit because, remember, 19 of every 20 Englishmen couldn't vote. Right. Who were the Americans to think they should be able to vote? It, it was called virtual representation. Right. Okay? We'll do this in your interests, right? But the Americans said, no, no, we're Englishmen. And they, were, they considered themselves proud subjects. Every time they might have met in gatherings, they would toast the king. They might not toast parliament because parliament was the ones who were taxing them. Okay. So the fact is that, that um, Franklin has to answer for this. And don't forget, in December of, 19, of, of 1773 was the infamous, to them, famous to us, Boston Tea Party. And the Boston Tea Party outraged Parliament, truly outraged Parliament. And they, they enacted what were called the Townsend Acts, but actually known in America as the Coercive Acts. And basically they, they took away Massachusetts self-government, they sent troops to occupy Boston and whatever else they could you know, send out into the rural areas. I mean, they were determined to suppress the rebellion that they saw basically in, in, in the makings. But Americans themselves saw that as an additional oppressive act. And from New England down to the deep south in the 13 colonies, Americans literally rose up and threw out British authorities. Now, this is important. People don't seem to appreciate this enough. In other words, in 1774 and 1775, Americans had staged a rebellion, but they weren't, but all they were asking for was the rights of freeborn Englishmen, which they even, by the way, 
even the French and the Germans and the, you know, the Dutch who were living in America thought of themselves as British because to be British was to have privileges or rights that other people in the world didn't have. So what's kind of interesting is that here's these Americans clamoring for their, to be treated equally with the English. It, the weirdest part is that given that every one of the colonies had their own assemblies, and in America, even though the same laws applied as to who got to vote for representatives in the assemblies as applied back in England to the parliament, far higher percentage of, of white men could vote in America for the colonial assemblies than could ever in England for probably a century. So Americans had a taste of democracy, you might say, in the assemblies, if they were white, okay, with a certain amount of property. And they were asking, however, for representation in England. Now, so Franklin knows that he's having to answer for this rebellion. He was already recruiting people that he believed could serve the rebellion. We don't know if he saw Payne as somebody who could serve the rebellion. Man, he's already in his late 30s. He's a little old to become a soldier, you might say. Right. But he does encourage Payne to go to America and even gives him a letter of introduction. Was he, was he uh, Franklin, did he um, at that time serve uh, as the American representative for the uh, Continental Congress at that time? Well, not for the Continental Congress, but basically for selected colonies who authorized him. Right? I, yeah. I well, think also he had a sort of unofficial position. He might well have been like a postmaster for the American colonies, that kind of thing. All right, so he gives them this letter of introduction and he sails away in 1774. Sails in, um, right, in the autumn of 74. And he, and he lands in the U.S. on a stretch. No, not the U.S., in America. Not the U.S. Yeah. yet. Right, but he lands, he lands uh, in, the, in the colonial. Philadelphia, Philadelphia. Philadelphia, which was the, the capital, basically. Right. It was a thriving, much more New York port and. Uh, but, but, it, but we should note only, it's kind of funny, the, the city of Philadelphia, which was the, so to speak, the unofficial capital of the colonies, was one mile square. That's it. That's with a population of 30,000. Wow. And but it was a thriving place. I mean, there were theater companies, there were bookstores. I mean, it was an incredible big town. But when he, he, when he arrives, he, he uh, is sick, barely uh, made. Barely that. makes it off the ship, right. And one of the few that were not indentured servants uh, coming across, yeah. and, uh, he has to be dragged off in a stretcher. Right. And it takes him a couple of weeks to uh, recuperate. So uh, now when he gets into Philadelphia, uh, he uh, starts going into bookstores. He's fascinated by it, and he goes probably going to bookstores, taverns, and so on. Yeah. Now, but I want to point out. I want to point out. Does he, he's not he's not poor, but neither is he really in any way well equipped financially. Right. But he is truly astounded by what he sees in America. Right. He so, feels like he's arrived. He practically feels he must have felt like he arrived in paradise. Right. So uh, when, when he gets there, he goes to this one bookstore uh, and he talks to the owner of the bookstore. And tell us uh, that story, how he okay. became. So among the bookstores he visits is a bookstore. And by the way, bookstores at that time were often print shops as well. That's important to note. Right. And he goes to a shop owned by a fellow named Robert Aitken. And 
presumably Aitken is getting a little frustrated because on a daily basis, Payne is showing up in the shop and probably treating it as if it's a library. So, so I assume that Aitken approached Payne and said, can I help you? And Payne said, well, you know, I'm just over from England and I, and I, you know, I have this thing I like reading and told him probably about his interest in public affairs and familiarizing himself with America. And they get to talking and I, somehow or other, I'm sure that Payne takes the opportunity to tell him that he has a letter of introduction from Ben Franklin. Having a letter of introduction from Ben Franklin would be like having a letter of introduction in Hollywood, as if you wanted to get a job in a sitcom and having a letter of introduction from Norman Lear today, okay? That kind of thing. Right. And Aitken says to him, well, you know, asked him, has, has he ever done any writing of his own? And Payne sh ends up coming back the next day and shows him some of the things he'd scribbled for the Headstrong Club, including, including that petition to Parliament and the Excise Commission. And Aitken says to, Aitken's impressed. The letter is what really sews it up. Aitken asks him if he'd like a job helping him edit, produce a new magazine, the Pennsylvania Magazine, which I believe had about a few hundred subscribers already lined up, which was pretty significant. Payne becomes the editor. And in the, within months, the magazine becomes the biggest magazine in the colonies. By the way, the number is not terribly impressive today, but it had 1,500 subscribers, okay? Which in is a important. town of uh, 30,000 people, that's a lot. Yeah, well, that's include also the mailed copies through the colonies, but still 15,000 is, uh, 1,500 is pretty good, exactly. Not 15,000, 1,500. So here's the point, here's the point. Payne, in his writings at first, is just literally celebrating what he discovers in America. Because he truly felt, he fell in love with America pretty quickly. But there was one thing that really disturbed him. You know what I'm about to tell you, right? Yes. He could not believe that here in America, where the Americans had literally thrown out the English authorities, demanding that they be treated as just like any other Englishman, and with in favor of representation. And they were talking about liberty. They talked about the English as if they were gonna to try to enslave them. And here in Philadelphia, Payne could see from his own window in, his, in the boarding house, the slave market of Philadelphia. Wow. And I... so his first political piece is to call for the end of slavery in the American colonies, called, the, called African Slavery in America. Right. That was the, the very first one was, uh, and that was like 17, uh, 1774. 1775. Spring of 75. So that, that's, his, uh, that's his like first piece, first big pamphlet. Uh, how, how, how large was that book? You don't have a copy of it. Do you? It wasn't a pamphlet. It was, it was a, an article he wrote. Okay. Right. Yes, an essay. Well, and how telling is it? Is he calls for the end of slavery. And he says that the colonists themselves have an obligation to provide the slaves an education and resources. He's, he's really very, very progressive in his thinking. Yeah, and, it, and as a result, a man, one of, the, one of the leading doctors in Philadelphia, a man named Benjamin Rush, decides he wants to meet this guy, Thomas Paine. 
Yes, I mute, and that is that's that you might say is kismet. All right. Well, we're gonna listen. We're gonna take a uh, uh, just a short musical break, and we'll be right back. Uh, we're gonna play uh, this uh, tune. Uh, it's uh, Barbara Streisand, uh, and this is um, what would pain do, I believe. And uh, we'll be right back. Uh, with uh, Harvey Kane. 1776, Tom Paine was writing books with might and main. The Tories said, now man alive, stop giving out with this hillibity jive. Stop giving out with this hillibity jive. Don't sing out people's rights that way. They might believe in what you say. So stop your song, it's not polite. Pipe down before you start a fight. Don't say Okay, that was Barbara Streisand. Can you tell me a little bit about that tune, by the way? Yeah, in the, in the 1930s, during the Depression, there was a, 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 there was a socialist left musical company that was going to put on a labor group. It was labor, socialist, and otherwise. Part of it, what was often called the popular front period in American history, the cultural front. And they were going to produce a, a musical theater production using workers themselves as well as theater people entitled Pins and Needles. Okay. Became a very, very, very well known. Uh, yes, I, I know of it. Yes. And one of the numbers was this piece. And then tw it was 1937, I believe. And 25 years later, I guess it was 62, there was a revival of it that Barbara Streisand appeared in and she sang that song. Oh, that was great. That's great. as I understand it, okay? Well, let's get back to Benjamin Rush, all right? So uh, Rush... Uh, so Rush, the doctor, comes to the print shop where the magazine is produced and asks to speak to the man who wrote this piece, African Slavery in America. And they end up going to, off to a coffee shop. And Rush is a member of the Continental Congress. And he's one of the radicals in the Congress. He's close to the likes of Adams and the others, okay? And Rush is so impressed by Paine that he suggests to Paine that he write a pamphlet that challenges the whole imperial colonial relationship. A pamphlet that would call for a break with Britain. It's a very funny story because we know the story not from Paine, but from Rush. He tells the story in, in, his, in his own writings. And he says he meets with Paine and he was so impressed that he makes this proposal to him. And Paine said to him, well, why don't you do it? You're a good writer. And Rush himself had once written a call for the end of slavery, but he had taken a beating when he did it. You know, he was, he was taking a beating because it was like an early abolitionist moment. And, it, and people just, some people even sort of stopped seeing him as a doctor. But so, so he was a little burned by his own political writing, okay? Yeah. So he said to Payne, I can't do it. I have too much to lose. Ah, yeah. Bullshit, right? 
Right, 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 right. So he, he, you can do it. You have nothing to lose. This is exact. By the way, this is Rush's version of the story, not Payne's version of the story. Payne never, never actually uh, told that story. Uh, but to my knowledge, he never told that story. Right. He was a little, a little embarrassed uh, that uh, he had somebody else write something uh, that uh, somebody else would would suggest to him, and maybe it wasn't his own idea. Right. Okay. So how did? So wait, what I just want to say is that, is that Rush also must have been telling people like Adams and Jefferson and the others of this man. And by the way, in the 18, I think it's the 1830s or 1840s, there's a Philadelphia writer who we can talk about next time or, the, or whenever we talk about the later years after Payne's death, who actually wrote a play which tries to recount how Payne is persuaded to write common sense by the radicals in the Congress. And it would, it would make for a great Hollywood moment, but I'll talk about that some other time. Well, look, there were not that many radicals in the Congress because you had representatives from the South. Right. Nobles, right. Basically, in yeah. the North, you had, uh, you know. None of them were talking, by the way, publicly, nobody was talking about independence. Right. And I assure you, nobody was talking about democracy. Right. Well, Republicanism as well. Uh, you say in your book that uh, he uh, told uh, Payne, leave out Republicanism. And, and he said, don't mention Republicanism or independence. All right. Everybody at that point still toasted to the, to the king, right? Yeah, absolutely. Well, it's so weird because Payne must have thought to himself, this is like, he must have actually been sitting there thinking, who, who is this guy who's telling me I should be writing about something that he, he's afraid to write about. And two, how am I supposed to write about separation from England if I can't even mention separation from England? Right. Okay. Well, he, he, doesn't, he doesn't bring up the word democracy in common sense. No, not at once. But, it's, but he, everything he writes from the start to the finish in common sense is all about, it's more about democracy almost than independence. But it's the two things. He opens the pamphlet. We'll talk about that in a little while with democracy, not with independence. Right, so uh, he does. Uh, so uh, I, I, gotta, I, I downloaded it, I gotta read it again, all right? It's been a long time. So this book comes out uh, in January, I believe, of 76? That January of 76, right. And, and so it's an immediate hit. I mean, an immediate, now it doesn't have his name on it. Right. It's an important point. It doesn't have his name on it, but it's an immediate hit. They may have published, Printed two thousand copies. Right. Well, who was who was the guy with the guts to print that? Because that would be seditious, basically. Now I can't remember if the first guy to do it was Bell. Some anyhow, I, I apologize. Doesn't matter. There was a first edition, and then there was a second edition that Payne Payne despised because they put put in it somebody who didn't like independence. So then Payne brought out his own second edition, and I'm just might have been Robert Bell who was the first. I can't remember. But I mean, it took a lot of. Uh, I can look it up if you want, but I can't. No, no, no. I just it didn't matter what his name is. I mean, it was a gutsy individual. It was gutsy, absolutely gutsy. What was the response when it first came out? I mean, was he sold out like immediately? Immediately hit. What pain? The first thing to understand is Payne was saying what he knew Americans themselves were were doing but not thinking. And I mean this, they were doing it but not thinking. When they threw out the British authorities in the rebellion, 
they created their own committees. All these major towns and cities were being run basically by, by colonial committees of their own. It was kind of like anarchism, right? right? I mean, really, I mean, it's an anarchist ideal. It's like committees are running everything instead of any kind of authority. Well, this, this book was so popular, 500,000 copies. You say in 2005, uh, that, that this is equivalent to 15 million copies. Yeah, thereabouts, right. I, I remember in 2005, uh, Oprah Winfrey had her uh, book club. Right. Guaranteed bestsellers. And I said, I said it was as if Payne had a, an Oprah Winfrey bestseller without Oprah. And, and so this book, John Adams, and this is kind of contradictory because he later slams uh, Payne, but he says, without the pen, of the author of Common Sense, the sword of Washington would have been raised in vain. So that's how- Not the pen of pain. Well, actually it was Robert, it was Barlow, not pain, not, not John Adams who said it. Well, it says in here that- uh, In where? You're not looking at my book. Oh no, I'm looking somewhere else. I'm looking at Wicked. Right. Everybody what... says it was Adams. It was not Adams. Okay. It was Barlow. All right, so Barlow, who was one of the chap who had, who was close to Washington himself, Barlow, and All Barlow right. said, "Without the pen of pain, Washington's sword would have been wielded in vain." He oh. also wrote this uh, song, this uh, the Liberty Tree song. Oh Tell yeah, that. well, Payne, Payne himself, I think, Payne loved poetry when he was growing up, he, and he loved Shakespeare and Blake and Milton. He loved these. Not Blake. Blake was a peer. He loved Milton and Shakespeare. Great. And he always wanted to be a poet, okay? His poetry is so-so. Not worth knowing. <laughs> All right. But this okay. was turned into a song, right? But, it, but one of them became the song, right? The Liberty Tree, absolutely. But well, here's another thought. This is, really, this is really important. Adams was one of those founders who thought of himself as a radical. But actually, actually, while he welcomed Paine's call for independence, he loved it. He did not like Paine's basic call for democracy. Because right. Adams was one of those guys who, though he despised the aristocrats, he had no trust in the people. Absolutely. Uh, we played that uh, from that uh, play at the very top. Um, and uh, Adams also uh, was loyal to uh, the monarchy. He uh, represented the... Um, the, um, the uh, one's soldiers, response to the Boston Massacre in yeah. 1770. He actually he in a fair trial. Let me, let me say something about Adams. This is really, I think, interesting, to me at least. Adams would be a great guy to go and have a beer, a coffee, or a wine with. Because he was the only one of his generation who actually spoke his mind in conversation. I see. Everyone else. What I mean by that is that everyone else always kept like a, a facade up. But Adams always let down his guard, always said who he hated, who he liked. It was like as if, as if it, it was as if he was always on a therapist's couch. Right. Well, he certainly did not like Thomas Jefferson, but that's not what we're going to talk about today. Uh, I do want to. I do want to say this will be indicative of what happens. Then we can talk about common sense, which, by the way, we're probably running longer than we want to do on all this stuff. But Adams bought three copies of Common Sense right away. He loved it. Right. 
and he kept one for himself and sent two by post up to Boston, up to New England, to his wife. And she had the task of giving it to someone else. Well, you know how the mails would have crossed at that time. I mean, it, was, it wasn't like you could get 24-hour delivery. So, hey, so Adams and Abigail, John and Abigail, their letters are crossing a lot. And at one point, Adams writes to her, well, what do you think? And when he does that, he, she has already written, basically, I love the sentiments. I'm charmed. That's the way she writes. I'm charmed by the sentiments of common sense, which is like saying that she got hot from common sense. Okay? <laughs> so You're a great guest. I want you to know that. Man. You got a great <laughs> sense of humor and a great gift of gab. Well, thank you. So Adams, Adams, she says, you know, she's assuming that her husband wrote it, I think. And he writes back and he says, she, I think she says, did you write this? And he goes, no, I could not have written it in such a manly fashion. Now, who would ever say to his own wife, I couldn't write it in a manly fashion? Only Adams, because he, he was just, he was, he was like, he was a stand-up comic in some ways, right? Right. So he says, he says, but then he says, I, could write, I couldn't have done that. But this, this writer, he doesn't use Payne's name, this writer has a, a task or talent for tearing things down, but he can't, doesn't know how to build things up. By the way, that's bullshit too, because Payne lays out in there, let's talk about this in a little while or next time, Payne's pamphlet, Common Sense, is not only an argument for democracy, it's an argument for an American constitution, a democratic constitution. And so Adams completely ignores that part of it because he hates, he doesn't like democracy. So that's when Abigail writes back to him, you know, and she says the famous line, remember the ladies. Right. If we yeah. left it up to you, we'd basically, basically be empowering wife abusers. That's yeah. what she, I'm paraphrasing. I could read it if you want, but I'm paraphrasing. Well, that's certainly in your book you talk about. Uh, yes, yeah, so if people buy the book, they'll get the exact words. But then Adams, and then she says, and she actually says, and if you don't do it right, we may have to come down there and make our own revolution. This is the, like the first feminist argument in America, you might say. So Adams comes back and says, oh, and this is great what he says. People ignore this generally. He says, not you too, not the largest tribe in America. We've already heard that students are rebelling against their teachers and professors. We're hearing that slaves in the South are rising up. What he's telling us basically is that all through the colonies, common sense is inciting not just more rebellion, but revolution. A half a million in print and, and then- Well, that's by the end of the revolution because it became so like, it was, by the way, if you asked a colonist, if you asked an American in the course of the revolution, what their founding document was, they would not have said the Declaration. They would have said common sense. Common sense. So, it, but people pass it around. So, if I got a copy, I right? Would read it Absolutely. And, Farmers oh. in the fields were reading it to each other. In the in the taverns, artisans and others would get up on tables and read aloud from it. And by the way, there's this great moment where Adams, Adams goes to the barber. And he's sitting in the barber chair. You know, barbers in those days had those huge blades, right? They, would, they were more often giving shaves than they were cutting hair. And so there's, there's Adam sitting in the chair and his barber saying to him, 
we're going to be reading tonight from Common Sense at the tavern. Why don't you cut? And he's got the blade to Adam's throat, right? <laughs> love. And there's Adams who, <laughs> I just love it. Well, Ad, you know, Adam says that, uh, that there's nothing new in Common Sense. Uh, it was derivative, but just done in this highfalutin, uh, colorful style. Not, not highfalutin, done in a very vulgar. Vulgar. That's it. Okay. All right. So uh, that was Adam's response. But yes. it was, uh, he was, it just had this incredible gift of, of writing, uh, you know. And, uh, yeah, right. And by the common person, he knew right. how to write because he came from a working class background. That's right. That's right. He really did. And so, something else about that, which is, which is really telling, is the fact that not only did people pass it around, every, every newspaper excerpted words from it. What By the way, I, I despise the name Mel Gibson for good reason, okay? Yeah. But before I realized that I needed to despise him, I saw a movie that he did called, what is it called? The Patriot? The Patriot, Patriot yeah. yeah. If in a, there's a moment in that film, Heath Ledger plays his son in the movie. He's a South Carolina planter, uh, uh, Mel Gibson. And the mail is delivered to their to their estate, to their mansion, you know, their plantation. And Heath Ledger, he's eager to see the mail because he knows it, it probably has a letter from his girlfriend who lives in the capital, or would that be Charleston? So Mel Gibson comes home from the fields, having, you know, mastered, you know, having dominated his slaves at that point. He comes back and he opens the mail and he opens the newspaper. It's an interesting moment in the film. And he's looking at an article inside, but the camera pans in to an article, and it's actually the excerpt from Thomas Paine's Common Sense. Wow. Yeah, I was sitting there in the movie, and I thought, oh, my God, I can't believe it. That's yeah. like the only good part of the movie, probably. The uh, best part of the movie, you bet. Uh, the reaction uh, by uh, the Tories uh, in the U.S. Uh, and, and the uh, British government in the U.S., the governors, uh, and, and, and the military. Yes. Uh, what, what was that? Uh, okay, the Tories, of course, hated it. Right. They started worrying for their lives, you might say. Okay. But here's the other thing. Even a good, goodly number of those who saw themselves as somewhat radical worried about it. Not, Adams wasn't alone in that. I mean, the property met, uh, members of the, of the Continental Congress on the one hand, there were those who loved it. On the other hand, there were those who, who hated it. They weren't all ready to jump to independence. But it's also the case that Paine wrote such a democratic argument that there were those who were truly antagonized by what he said. Was, okay? was there any... Governor Morris, who was, a plant, who was a landowner and a merchant and a lawyer from New York who spent time between New York and Philadelphia, he never cared for Thomas Paine, which would later come back to haunt Paine's life. Um, Robert, but you understand, the working people just loved it. So Tories and others who had reservations. I mean, it was a real split kind of kind of thing. Was there ever a prosecution of uh, an attempted prosecution of, of common sense, of paying for common sense? Yes. No, absolutely not. No, absolutely not. the British government that was running the U.S. at the time still well, they uh, they thought they were they thought they were, but they never made the, they didn't try to suppress it. Well, they, did try, they didn't try to suppress common sense. That was, well, by the way, there were cities where, where 
Tories tried to suppress common sense. Right. But the artisans then, especially there was one case in New York where there was an effort to suppress it, but the artisans in, in the city of New York, where you are, they stormed the print shop and literally just distributed it themselves. Wow, that's an incredible story. Yeah. Uh, we are talking, we have been talking with Harvey Cake. Harvey, uh, the book is uh, uh, Thomas Paine, uh, Promise of America. Uh, you can get it. It's still out there. Uh, get oh, it yeah, it's, it's still out there. It's my love letter to America. Yeah, and it's really a wonderful piece. And it's really uh, exactly what I wanted to talk about, up to common sense. Because, you know, we've got an hour here and we're going to have to continue, you know, American crisis and all of that. Uh, when we do this again in a few days, uh, we'll continue this discussion and we want to do two or three dedicated to Thomas Paine, who I consider the main founding father of this nation as we go into the uh, 4th of July holiday. Uh, he certainly is the person to celebrate. I, I believe you uh, enthusiastically concur with that assessment. You bet. Uh, so uh, we're going to go out with... Um, I think, is there anything else you want to add to common sense before we uh, sign off? Yeah, well, I'm going to tell you this. I mean, we may talk a bit about common sense next time, I would hope, but... We will. We definitely will. Okay, here's the thing, okay? The thing about common sense is that we should all keep it by our bedside. Because in spite of the fact it was written in the late 18th century, if you sit with it and you allow yourself it maybe even at bedtime to read bits of it, you'll feel like it's a letter from an old friend. Definitely going That's to what I would say, okay. I'm gonna read it in its entirety before we speak again. So okay. this is great. This is part one of our conversations with Harvey Kay on uh, Thomas Paine. And uh, we'll do something on FDR and uh, your, your book on, uh, on American radicals uh, in, in the coming uh, uh, conversations. I appreciate this. We're gonna go out with another version. I got two or three to select from uh, of Thomas Paine's bones, Tom Paine's bones. All right, I really appreciate your, uh, you know, you're, you're such a wonderful guest to have on. It really has been entertaining for me and educational. And, Thank you, this is fun. All right, we'll talk soon, all right? Thank you, we'll be right back. As I dreamed out one evening by a river of discontent, a bump stream to old Tom Payne was running down the road. That I can't stop right now, child King George is after me He'd have a rope around my throat And hang me on the liberty tree And I will dance to Tom Paine's bones I'll dance to Tom Paine's bones Dance in the oldest boots I own To the rhythm of Tom Paine's bones I will dance to Tom Paine's bones Dance to Tom Paine's bones Dance in the oldest boots I own Talked about freedom and justice for everyone. But since the very first one I spoke, I've been looking down the barrel of a gun. And they say I preach revolution. Let me say in my defense that all I did wherever I went was to talk a lot of common sense. And I 
Want danst de Pantingsbons Danst de Pantingsbons Danst in die oldest That was Tom Payne's Bones. Really, what a great tune and a great name. Uh, I'm Randy Critical. This is Randy Critical live on the fly. You've been listening to our first of a three-part series with Professor Harvey K of the University of Wisconsin at Green Bay. And we're focusing on the unsung hero of the American Revolution, and that is the revolutionary journalist, Tom Payne. I wanna thank uh, Kelly Lane, who not only is uh, engineering, but editing uh, this episode as she has uh, for the past uh, couple of weeks. Uh, and if you'd like to support this program, you can. Uh, go to AssangeCountdownToFreedom.com uh, and uh, help us uh, fight back against uh, Donald Trump and uh, William Barr's war on the press as it is expressed through the persecution of Julian Assange. Uh, whether you like Julian Assange or not, that's not the point. The point is, is that the First Amendment and free speech and the free press is at stake here. This is a vital vital case and we need to circle the wagons around Assange and I plan to do many of these prior to and then after uh, the continuation of the hearing in September and we could use your support uh, so go to um, AssangeCountofFreedom.com all right so um, we've been playing this um, video that uh, Jimmy Sunderland uh, put together, uh, one of our editors, uh, and it's uh, Billy Holiday, uh, Strange Fruit, and it's a memorial to all of those up until a couple of weeks ago who are victims of um, uh, police murder. So uh, we'll see you soon. Thank you very much, and thank you, Kelly Lane, and uh, that's it. We'll be right back. This is Billy Holiday, Strange Fruit with what has happened. The last two centuries, uh, African-Americans gunned down by law enforcement, enslaved, uh, put to work, uh, convict leasing, put in jail with the drug war. But in the last week, it's really heated up and it's gotta stop. Southern trees bear strange fruit. Blood on the leaves and blood at the root. Black bodies swinging in the southern breeze. Strange fruit hanging from the poplar trees. Gallant South 
the bulging ass and the twisted mouth scent of magnolia sweet and fresh then the sudden smell of burning flesh here's a fruit for the crows to pluck for the rain together for the wind to suck Father, son to rot Father, tree to drop He is a strange and bitter